Welcome to the Whiskey Rebellion. This is David Silken in Edinburgh, joined as always by Frank Cogliano, who is uh, phoning in from Sweden this week. How are things in Sweden, Frank? Uh, things in Sweden are great, David. It's a nice sunny day here in Stockholm. It is uh, June 6th, which is Sweden's national day. So it's a, it's a national holiday right now. Uh, I'm not that sure I did not know. what it actually commemorates, but um, it's Sweden's national day. So happy and it's D-Day and other things. So uh, happy June 6th to people who celebrate June 6th. Uh, right. Uh, so this week we are uh, discussing an article that appeared in the Atlantic by Peter Turchin, uh, which is based on his book, End Times, Elites, Counter-Elites, and the Path to a, a Political Disintegration. Uh, it's sort of a precy of this book, which is coming out in a couple of weeks. And we thought we'd use that article as the basis for our discussion today. Uh, Frank, for those people who haven't had a chance to read the article, do you wanna give the, the 30 second uh, cliff note version of, of what the article is about, and then we can sort of dive into the details. Absolutely, David. So uh, the headline that appears in the, in the you're right, this is a uh, distilled version in the Atlantic, and the headline for that essay says is, America is headed towards collapse. History shows how to stave it off. And so uh, what Turchin has argued is that the United States might be on the verge of collapse um, because of, well, he says there are two main factors, which I, I think, one of which I found more interesting than the other. The first is uh, what he calls popular immiseration, when economic fortunes, when the economic fortunes of broad swaths of the population decline. Uh, and I think we've talked about inequality a lot over the course of, the, of, the, uh, of this podcast over the past few years. Uh, but the second, uh, which he says is more significant, uh, is something called elite overproduction. When a society produces too many super rich and ultra educated people and not enough elite positions to satisfy their ambitions. And so Turchin has argued and he claims that he and his, his research team have built a database of hundreds of societies across 10,000 years to look at when societies collapse and what causes those collapses. And he's, um, he, he claims that these two factors are all important and he sees both of them at play in the contemporary United States. And he says this has happened twice before in, in the history of the United States. Once in your era, and a lot of this essay is about the Civil War and I wanna hear mm. your views about them, uh, about what he has to say about that, but once in the run up to the Civil War and the second time was in the early 20th century. Um, in the mid 19th century, when this kind of equality and elite overproduction resulted in civil war, according to Turchin, and the massive dis dislocation that that caused, and of course the death and destruction that was attendant to it. The second time, and this is the, the conclusion he's making, in the, or the argument he's making in the article is that we should pay attention to this, was in the mid 20th century, in the aftermath of the New Deal and the Second World War, when there was a kind of rebalancing in American society and in, in Turchin's telling, uh, the elite, that elite uh, uh, recognized that it needed to make concessions to the immiserated uh, majority of the population. And the result was an era of great prosperity. And we talked about this too, the kind of mm. prosperity of the United States in the middle uh, part of the 20th century and into the latter part of the 20th century. And so his argument is that we have these two factors a kind of popular immiseration and elite overproduction 
at play in the United States at the moment, and that the United States is heading towards a crisis, and that it can the implication is it can take one uh, of these two paths. So, David, is that is that a fair summary of the essay? I, I think that is a, a fair summary of the essay. So, before we dig into that, should we talk about Turchin himself? Because I think who he is in his personal biography might actually be helpful in terms of making sense of of, of what he's arguing here. Um, yeah, it should be said he's not a historian, right? Well, to talk no. about Turchin, tell us a bit about Peter Turchin, David. So, so he was born in the Soviet Union, um, and his father was a was a dissident, and his father and his family, uh, including uh, Peter, were, were exiled from, from Russia in 1977. He comes to the United States. Uh, and I think the fact that he's Russian and he's, and he's thinking, he's thought formatively about the collapse of the Soviet Union, I think is, is, is important in terms of his, his worldview. Um, but he, he becomes an academic, he gets a PhD at, at Duke, I think. Uh, but his background is in quantitative biology originally, and then in sort of larger mathematical modeling. Uh, so he's, I think he's at UConn now, um, but his, you know, so he's not a historian either by training or by, by profession. He's, he's somebody who's interested in um, mathematical modeling of historical Facts. He's written a series of books now, and this is the, the one we're discussing is the one that's coming out soon, uh, that sort of uses this kind of method to, to explore the past. Yes, he calls it cleodynamics. Um, and, and I was reminded, David, when I was reading this, um, uh, for, for listeners who are familiar with Isaac Asimov's Foundation series, uh, mm. I was reminded of Harry Selden and Selden's uh, uh, the character Harry Seldon, the whole premise of, of the Foundation series is that um, if you aggregate masses of data, you'll be what we now call big data, you'll be able to um, delineate historical trends and possibly mitigate the worst um, consequences of, 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 of societal uh, mm. catastrophes. And, and, and uh, there's, at least in my own mind, there's a bit of Harry Seldon about Peter Turchin. Is mm. that fair? I think so. Uh, and just, just for those um, listeners who are trying to make sense of what the name Clio Dynamics means, Clio is the muse of history. Um, you know, there were these muses of, of dancing and in poetry and, and other various things. And, and there's a muse of history and her name is Clio. Um, who, um, there's a nice painting of her, by the way, on the, the ceiling of McEwen Hall. Um, so Clio Dynamics is about using uh, dynamic mathematical modeling to 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 make sense of history. Um, some people may, for some people, this may evoke uh, Cleometrics, which is uh, economic using very similar kinds of things that was very trendy in the the uh, 1970s and early 1980s. We may talk more about whether this is the same thing or something different than, than Cleometrics. Uh, but but he's somebody who is trying to use, as you say. Uh, set of, of mathematical modeling to try to figure out and predict in some ways, although he says he's not a prophet, how to, how societies collapse. I think that's his real interest is, is how complex societies have, have both risen, but especially how they fall apart. So David, um, is the United States on the brink of collapse? Uh, well, per, uh, Turchin would would tell you it is, or and and I'm not sure in that respect 
that he's wrong in as much as there's some, some pretty unsettling things going on in the United States right now. And, and, and I think his supposition that, that basically since the 1970s, the past 50 years has been a, a process. And he talks about these, these processes of integration and disintegrating phases in, in societies. And the past 50 years, I think using his model seems to suggest that, especially this idea about uh, wealth inequality, the, 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 the overproduction of elites that he talks about. Uh, the article mentions the fact that there are you know, a lot more uh, millionaires now than there were 30 or 40 years ago, uh, but that the average wages have, have, have stagnated, if not gone, gone down. Um, and so that, that gulf and that overproduction of, of elites, I think is, is uh, I think he's right about all of those things, whether those are the most important factors or whether those are the factors uh, that, that uh, we need to make sense of, I think I'm not sure. What do you think, Frank? Uh, well, I mean, undoubtedly the United States is facing some stresses and strains right now. We, we've talked a lot about these mm episodes and we don't necessarily it's the entire serve. premise of our podcast yeah um, to a certain extent yes uh i need to need to rehearse them uh again here i you know there were some striking figures that i took from the essay you, you alluded to one of them so in in um 1983 there were 66,000 households in the united states worth more than 10 million dollars today uh, that figure has increased to by tenfold i think so 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 it, it's it, there are some striking um, factoids, if you will, from this that, that if seen in isolation would seem to be um, worrying and, and not just in isolation. I mean, I think as statements of fact, they are. Uh, what, where I, I, I'm really interested in this idea, there are two things I really want to discuss with in this essay, uh, about this essay, I should say, in, in this podcast. The, the first is his interpretation of history, particularly he has a lot to say about the run of the Civil War. So I really want to hear your views on that. Mm. But the other thing that really interests me is this, this, this um, worry about the, uh, the, the overproduction of elites, as he puts it, that there are too many elite Americans competing for power. Interestingly to me, the measure of power he uses that there are competing for power and prestige. Uh, mm. the, 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 the chief kind of metric he uses um, is political office. Uh, and basically, there's a relatively fixed number of political offices, and there are more elites than ever in, term, in, in terms of the, the real number of people with, with um, wealth and social capital, I guess, to aspire to political leadership. And the implication is that this is a problem. I push back at this slightly. I, I mean, I... Sorry, let me stop for a second. On one hand, I understand this. We work in, a, in the elite production business in the sense that we work in higher education, which by, by its nature is, is elite focused. Uh, and we work in an elite institution, frankly. So, mm -hmm. so uh, it, not in the United States, but it, I think what he's talking about applies across the, the um, developed world, frankly. And so what we've seen in the past 50 years is, you know, getting into elite universities and colleges is harder than ever, hmm. right? Uh, there's no doubt about that because there's a, there's a growing number of students who are qualified to get into elite institutions, yet there's a relative, there is a finite number of spots. Even if there are more spots than there were 40 years ago, it's still a fixed number. 
Uh, and, and so on one hand, you know, based on the world we work in, I completely understand this. On the other, his measure of political office, I find interesting because what we've seen, uh, and I, I don't want to make this a partisan statement, but uh, because I think there are some dullards on both sides, you know, the quality of the people being elected to, to Congress, for example, mm. seems to me to be much lower than it was 50 years ago. Uh, you know, the, the, the people cracking the elite um, mm. don't, if that's your measure, uh, I mean, I suppose there were always people. Well, were there always people like Marjorie Taylor Greene? Was there a Marjorie Taylor Greene or a Lauren Boebert in, in, in Congress or a Matt Gates 50 years ago? Yeah, I think there were. I think there were. Right. There probably Kevin were. There's been... no social media. Yeah, um, right. yeah. you know, I don't want to engage in you know, good old daysism, um, but, but I'm not sure we're sending the best and the brightest, which was an ironic title when, it, when Halberstam coined it, um, mm into government these days well but i think competition doesn't always mean that the best or most qualified people end up winning okay you know in as much as if you look at races for elective office how much money gets put into them how competitive they are for the ones races that are not uh gerrymandered to the point where they're not competitive uh but you know the the amount of how hard it is to get into politics in terms of, of making sure you have the resources and, and other kinds of things. I think those are harder than it ever has been. Um, even at state and local offices, I think that, that that's a, probably the case. Um, so David, do you think the, uh, before we get to the civil war, do you think the overproduction of elites is a problem? Um, and Churchill says it's the most important factor in all factor, of this. Yes, it's, that's, it's the most intriguing um, of his claims, right? I mean, the, the wealth inequality, sure, you know, we can think about the French Revolution or the Russian Revolution or various other things in which wealth inequality prompts, you know, um, uh, social upheaval, et cetera. Um, you know, he said in other places uh, that, you know, one of the other times in which you have this overproduction of elites is in Britain in the 19th century, but they had the advantage of being able to export many of their elites to other countries or to colonies. And that allowed them to sort of prevent that kind of, of uh, crisis. You know, he points out that, that you have the, when you have too many elites competing, you end up with sort of anti-establishment counter elites that are fighting against um, the, the, the establishment elites, and that could be problematic um, because it causes lack of confidence in institutions, and we've seen lots of lack of confidence in institutions in the United States. Um, I think it's an interesting observation. I'm not sure it's one of the key things that's going to lead to revolution or societal collapse, though. That seems a, a bit much to me. I mean, I think one problem I have with this article and with this overall approach is it's it's trying very hard to, to, to distill history into a, a handful of premises. And, and I think that he's been fairly explicit. That's his project is to, to take human behavior and history and turn it into a science and say, look, here are the Newtonian laws of motion for human societies. Um, and that troubles me because that's not, I think, how actual human society works. 
Um, and I think it's a, I can understand the attraction of that model of how uh, societies work, but I don't think it's, it's actually all that effective or useful because it blends out and flattens all the distinctiveness and, and, and quirks and, and happenstance that's um, actually does shape how, how history unfolds. Yeah, I agree with you. Uh, I mean, this is one of the danger. You know, one of the one of the one of the blessings of our discipline is that people do engage with it. Uh, you know, so mm. I don't I don't subscribe to the complaint that some of our colleagues, especially the so-called Twitter historians, make about how what a burden it is to have to encounter the public. You know, sitting on a plane and telling people you're a historian is is some sort of curse because people tell you they're history buffs or whatever. I think that's on balance, a good thing. Lots of people, hmm. you know, we don't have to explain to people what we do. They understand it. And people, you know, you meet people from all walks of life who are interested in our discipline. And I think on balance, that's a good thing. However, what we see in, in this essay and with in certain uh, areas is people think that because they've read a bit of history, they're experts on history and, and, and hmm. it can lead to some, and again, on balance, I think, okay, we, that, that, that's a good thing, but I, I think that it leads uh, in some cases to um, some frankly uh, bizarre conclusions. And I think this yeah. is a good example of that. Having said that, and so, so one of my big critiques about, about um, Turchin's approach is American history or the history of the United States in this country. Hmm is almost too short for this kind of analysis. I think the kind of broad analysis he's trying to do and saying, I've looked at thousands of you know, societal collapses over 10,000 years or hundreds, I should say, over 10,000 Yeah, he's got a huge database that's called crisis database that has trying to quantify all this stuff. Right, um, I mean, I'm actually kind of intrigued by that, that application of, of big data to trying to understand the past, but you have to try to understand big portions of time or segments mm -hmm. of time for that to be meaningful. And I think the 250 years uh, as it approaches of the United States is probably not long enough to make any meaningful analysis yet. And, and even the, the so-called crises he's talking about, the two big kind of uh, points where he fe feels that these social factors came together right before and during the Civil War, and mm. then in the middle of the 20th century, are almost too close together to be to be uh, to be helpful. Well, he, well he, he would argue that the 250 years of American history doesn't matter because he's not just using American history as his right. model. He's using feudal China and the fall of the Roman Empire and the French Revolution as you know, he's using all of this stuff to say, look, here are things that, that cause societies to collapse. And here are the, you know, three or four factors that are most important. And, oh, wow, the uh, if you look at the month my book is coming out in, uh, <laughs> all these things are, are very pressing right now. Um, so, you know, I think the, 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 the two examples he picks, I think the the second one, the, the, the Great Depression, actually, I think, makes more sense, right? That there was a crisis moment. The crisis had to do with a huge sense of, 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 of inequality and, 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 and the ways in which the, the gulf between, you know, wealthy Americans and those who were struck uh, hurt most deeply by the Depression and, and the ways in which people's distrust in society was harmed. And that elites, he said, you know, FDR on down, recognize that to save the society, they need to transform it to, to help people who have been harmed by this 
by the structures, sure, I think his model mostly works for that. For looking at the coming of the Civil War, I, I, uh, it doesn't hold water for me at all. I mean, like none yeah, okay. of it really works. Um, yeah, the coming of the Civil War is is one of the most studied periods of American history, undoubtedly, in part because it is very complex. The, the nuances and and things I think matter, and the things he pointed out, you know, about about wealth inequality. Well, you know, and he mentions wages. Well. He, and the fact that wages in some ways, depending on how you measure wages, goes down in the decades prior to the Civil War. Well, you know, one fifth of the people in the United States at the time were enslaved. And, you know, uh, another half were, were, more than half were not waged workers of any kind. Actually, the majority of people were not waged workers because they were, you know, either women who were uh, not gainfully employed in waged labor or they were farmers. And so, you know, looking at wages is not a useful rubric uh, for, for making sense about, about wealth inequality. He doesn't talk about slavery at all. Uh, and, and talking about the coming of the Civil War and not talking about slavery means you're doing it wrong. Um, you know, and, and the politics of the period are very complicated, you know, and, and the, the role of historical accident, the role of, of, of you know, serendipity, I think, is, is, is and the complexity and, and contingency just doesn't get addressed at all in this model. Uh, so, yeah, I think if, if an undergraduate were to talk about the, let me explain the causes of the Civil War and talk about wage inequality uh, and overproduction of elites, I think that's a necessity that would, would not very probably do very well. Because uh, it doesn't engage yeah. with the specifics of the period. Well, uh, yes, uh, he mentions, for example, the uh, any in fact, he cites our friend Joanne Freeman, he mentions mm. the increase in violence in politics and in Congress in particular. Um, and he presents this as a product of the competition between and among the uh, 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 burgeoning elite or competing elites as he sees them um, for, for power. And basically, when you have an overproduction of elites, which he sees today as well, what you get, you can get a more violent politics. So, you, you know, and he cites, of course, the famous um, caning of Charles Summer by Preston Brooks, which you know a bit about, David. Sure. Uh, yes. Does, does that, does that, ex did you find that at all compelling? No, they're not, they're not hitting each other over the head with canes because there's too many elites. They're hitting themselves over the head with canes because they don't <laughs> see each other as politi politically legitimate. And they see each other as 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 enemies and not as political rivals. Um, it's not because there's too many of them. It's because that the, the people who are there are bifurcated in their politics. Um, okay, let me you know, let me play Turchin's advocate here though, because one thing he did say there was basically of a rising northern elite, which he does, I don't, I'm not even sure he used this phrase, but let's say is more capitalist oriented than than the um southern slaveocracy and yeah. his argument is that there are we have these competing elites there are kind of echoes of charles beard there yeah and that the result of the civil war is that that um northern more capitalist oriented elite triumphs over the southern agricultural elite 
um, which he doesn't mention the actual war itself, but presumably a lot of them were killed during the war as well as lost their wealth as a result of the consequences of the war. As a macro analysis, do you find anything there of value? There's nothing Listen, new there. Listeners, you can't see David's face right now, but I can, I wish you could. No. <laughs> um, He's not persuaded, I think. No, no. I mean, it, 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 as you point out, like there are some ideas there, but the ideas are almost 100 years old. They're, they're, and, and, and they don't re reflect any sort of specificity or engagement with, 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 with any historical thought that's happened in, in the past 50 years at all. Um, you know, this whole model of doing history and uh, of, of, of trying to quantify and then still, you know, there, there are a couple people, of, you know, Turchin's not the first person to, to try this. And, and, and everyone who has done it before has gotten a lot of attention for it. And then ultimately people have concluded, no, that's nonsense. You know, and the, the, the two examples that jump out to me um, are Fogel and Engerman's Time on the Cross from the 1970s, um, which was an attempt, Fogel, and Eng, Fogel uh, was, an, was an economist, Engerman, um, who just passed away, I think a week ago, uh, was a historian, but they were trying to, to use mathematical modeling in the 70s to make sense of, of a number of things. They wrote a book about slavery. They wrote a book about railroads and canals and stuff. Uh, but the, their most important book or the one that gets all the credit is Time on the Cross, which tries to say, look, historians have written about slavery, but we're going to actually make sense of slavery using math. And computers were a brand new thing then. They had huge databases with punch cards, and people were very excited about having this kind of scientific approach to to studying the past that wasn't just anecdotes and and glosses on reading texts or whatever else it is the rest of us do and you know it got a huge splash they were on the cover of time magazine and they were invited to all the morning talk shows and Vogel ends up winning the nobel prize for economics the book is nonsense in as much as the math they use is based on data, which isn't great, conclusions they reach from their calculations are based on all kinds of assumptions that are not really supported by the evidence. Um, you know, it's a, a case study about a, a historical methodology going wrong, um, but trying to sort of use very similar kinds of methodologies and, and you know, um, Coming to completely wrong conclusions, um, and I don't know whether Persians come to the you know the same kinds of wrong conclusions that Bungle and Engerman did, uh, but but I think the the premise of trying to use use quantitative methods in this particular way to to distill history into a set of laws is, is fundamentally I think misguided about what history history is as a as a discipline. Um, Okay. Um, yeah, I agree with you. Uh, however, <laughs> let me let me. We'd be out of work if we if we didn't disagree with them. Um, that's right. <laughs> well, we don't get paid for this podcast, David. <laughs> so well, no, but I mean, no. I mean, we'd be you know, like the, the the historical profession would shrink down to a handful of guys with a huge database if they oh, actually right, said, "Oh, yeah. here are the five rules." Um, yeah. uh, but, uh, 
let, let's leave aside his methodology and what he has mm. to say about your field in particular and our field more generally, in the sense that he's not wrong that this is a period of fairly uh, pronounced inequality in the United States and elsewhere, I would add, uh, globally. Um, and that in the past, the United States has faced crises. We won't necessarily say that there are laws at work here. Uh, one resulted in a cataclysmic war, the, arguably the, you know, the most traumatic event in American history, uh, which you're an expert on. Uh, mm. The other, and I don't want to downplay the trauma of the Great Depression or the, or the Second World War. I think one of the problems with the analysis is that, that um, Churchill does do, did sort of downplay their significance, but is that his argument is, well, the elite in the middle of the 20th century accepted limits and limits on their power and limits on their wealth that forestalled that kind of crisis. Hmm. And his, the implication of this essay is the elite today, and he's, he's pessimistic about whether it has the self-awareness and capacity to do so, needs to accept similar limits to forestall a third great crisis. Yeah. So yeah, he, he points out that, you I, know, that the World War II generation had a 90% income tax for, for right. a long period of time uh, for the top exactly, tax bracket. Exactly. Yeah. So are you more sympathetic with the argument, if not the methodology? In the past, sorry, before you finish, <laughs> I didn't give you a chance to finish. I apologize. That's, you gave me a chance we, to start. Past, but... <laughs> yeah, just in the past, we have said, or at least I think in the, in the podcast, I don't know if we've said this mm. explicitly, but certainly a sentiment I have. The period we're in now feels a little bit like the 1890s, the period right before the, the progressive era. And, mm. and to a certain extent, that's a variation on this argument because what we saw was you know, extremes of wealth um, and poverty in the 1890s, social strife in the 1890s. And the solution to that, which was not perfect, but helped, was the, mm. were the reforms of the progressive era, which paved the way to the New Deal. So to some extent, we have kind of hinted at a similar argument. I guess that's the, as I, as I kind of advocate in a very kind of lukewarm way for Turkson, I would say we, we've kind of danced around this ourselves in the past. Sorry, I, I interrupted you. Well, I mean, I think, you know, I think you're right that, that, you know, one of the claims that we make in this podcast and that historians make generally is that understanding the past can help provide context for understanding the present and that certain historical moments seem to have parallels and reverberations with the crises the United States and the world is facing right now. Sure. Um, But I don't think that any of, you know, that the was, what is the bit about history doesn't repeat itself, it rhymes. Um, you know, that, that the, the 1890s were, were you know, an, in, an interesting parallel to the moment we're in now, whether we're in a new gilded age, et cetera. Um, but you know, nobody extends that metaphor to the extent to say, oh, well, we need to really think about bimetallism again. And right. you know, <laughs> because it's a fundamentally different period and we're in different times and we're feeling with dealing with different crises. There are parallels, but but I think the parallels have value, but 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 it, we we recognize the limits of and the value of those limits. Um, 
you know, I think uh, making sense of, of, of this crisis the United States is in right now, if that's what it is, um, you know, I think one thing that's intriguing about, about Turchin is he is very popular with the Silicon Valley elite. They are very attracted to this model of thinking about the past and about the future in as much as they see people like Turchin as being able to um, not only make sense of the past, which is, you know, kind of what we try to do as, a, as historians, but also to predict the future and thereby to, to create models that will allow them to survive the next apocalypse or what have you. Um, so it's intriguing that he's both sort of critical of, of elites, but he's also quite popular with the very, the very same segment of elites that he's that he's critical of. Um, well, he's proposing a disruption, isn't he? And, and, but also offering a kind of shortcut to a solution, um, so, so, so which appeals to elements of that that kind of subculture of the elite. I think. Hmm. Yeah, he, he reminds me a lot. Uh, of Jared Diamond. I don't know if you have you ever read Jared Diamond. I read Guns, Germs, and Steel a long Steel. time okay. ago. So, so what do you have in mind in, in this? Well, book? so so Jared Diamond is uh, has written a number of books now. Which Guns, Germs, and Steel was the one that they got first got a lot of attention. He wrote a subsequent book called Collapse that tries to explore why societies collapse. Uh, you know, and the intriguing thing about Diamond and the way I think he's sort of parallel to Turchin is he's trying to make history into a science. They both have backgrounds in biology, and I think that's intriguing. Um, that that you know they they try to create very particular frameworks for human behavior that they claim are universal across time and different cultures and what have you. Um, and they tend to be attractive as as writers to similar kinds of audiences. And so I think there's a, I think there's a, you know, between Fogel and then Diamond and Church, I think there's a there's a there's a through line there of a certain kind of mode of thinking that I think is intriguing that people are trying very hard to, or there there's a, an attraction to this kind of mode of, of studying the past that is in some ways fundamentally at odds with the ways in which historians study the past. Um, you know, we are very interested in, in these specifics of, of individual societies and cultures and political systems and places. And the, 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 the nuance, I think, matters in a way that uh, to us as historians that, that um, they see as, as noise, really, in, in, in the, in, and not something that, really, you know, is worthy of people's attention. But don't we need big picture aggregators who can synthesize the work we do in, in relatively narrow time periods to kind of bring it together and, and, and reflect on what it all means? Yes, if what they are doing is actually synthesis. And I'm not sure that um, Turchin is actually engaged in synthesis in a, in a meaningful way. Or neither was Jared Diamond, nor you know, and um, Vogel wasn't either. Um, you know, because synthesis involves actually reading the work and then trying to build connections to it. And, and you know, there are lots of historians who are great synthesizers who, you know, 
read enormous amounts of, of scholarship and are able to take it and 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 make interpretations based on 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 all those little you know smaller pieces of, of work. I mean your 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 mentor Alan Taylor is a, a wonderful example of this. Much of his recent scholarship has been in this mode of, of trying to build big structures about American colonies or the revolution or or, or what have you. Uh, so I think there's tremendously a place for that. I think what these guys are doing is something fundamentally different than that. I think there's that they're they're trying to boil it down to 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 the extent that you know with with these sort of mathematical models and databases, you know, um, data analysis is only as good as the data you feed into it. And our data about the past is is woefully incomplete, uh, and is contextualized and, and needs to be made sense of. You know, anyone who has worked with census data or any kind of government records, you know, knows this. You can't just read the numbers and say the numbers are numbers and good enough. You know, we you need to read the numbers critically and need to make sort of make sense of them in the context in which they were made and people who made them. And none of this model really allows you to do that. You know, when you talk about wage inequality, you got to figure out what wages mean and what work means, and you need to figure out how gender and race and class and all these things factor into those 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 criteria, and and all of those things are you know are, are deeply historically contingent uh, and contextual, and uh, boiling it down to a number doesn't do that. So I'm not going to be first in line to get Peter Turchin's book, at least based on on this excerpt from the Atlantic. Um, I could be persuaded if, 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 if other people do it, read it and, and read some good reviews. But uh, do you think the essays were, do you think the essays worth reading? I mean, I would recommend it to our listeners only because oh, definitely. It, is, it is thought provoking. Uh, I, you know, I'm, I, yes, I think it is worthy of, of the, the 15 minutes it takes to read the article and, and think about the, the implications about, about, especially the, this, you know, the, this question about overproduction of elites. I think that's a fascinating idea. Um, whether it's one of three or four causal variables, I, I'm not that for all of human history, I'm not quite sure I fall into that. You know, that doesn't work for me. But as a as a a way of thinking about about how societies end up becoming internally divided, I think that's a fascinating idea. What do you think? I agree. I mean, that that was my biggest takeaway in terms of a sort of oh, that's an interesting idea, and I wonder what the implications of that are. As I said, because we work in in the kind of in a no, no, I mean, I, the, the production of elites. Um, well, I mean, I, I think the, you know, the idea that, that, that lots of things are a lot more competitive now than they used to be, you know, 50 years ago. Um, I think that's, that's right. I think that, that uh, you know, the, the globe is a much more competitive place. Jobs in elite professions, whether that's in law or in business or in banking or in academia are, are, are much more competitive. Um, you know, the, the, what it takes to get into elite universities, as you point out, you know, is much harder than it, than it used to be. And it was never easy, uh, but, but it's gotten progressively more and more uh, competitive. And that leads to all kinds of bitterness and consequences and what have you. Um, one one of the points that Turkson makes again, uh, we need to wrap this up. Is uh, 
it also leads to the system breaking and leads to cheating. So he doesn't cite the varsity blues scandal, for example, in mm. college admissions, but that was what struck me when the, 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 when the system breaks or the, when the elite competition gets this intense, people will cheat. Mm. Um, and, and that leads to a breakdown of the meritocracy. But uh, anyway, I, I think it's a thought-provoking article. I, I agree with you. I'm not persuaded that I'm going to go out and um, buy the book, but I, I think the article is, if people are looking for something to read um, um, during the, these first days of summer, that they could do worse than, than reading this essay and thinking about it. And maybe we're completely wrong about it. Well, undoubtedly, we're, we're probably wrong about most things. Um, Frank, time for last drop, Frank. What what'd you got? Uh, I want to praise the uh, Library of America, which is is a is a book series and a publisher that that seeks to uh, publish the greatest works in 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 American history and and culture and literature uh, and preserve them for all time. Uh, it's it's a it's a great series. It's a it's an interesting series, and and the the volume that has led to this praise is just this week they published the collected works of Charles Portis, who's probably best known to listeners as the author of True Grit, which was the very good novel, excellent novel in my view, that became two very good movies, actually. Um, the original has John Wayne in it, and the, the, uh, it was more recently remade by the Cone Brothers about a decade ago. Uh, but but uh, the Library of America has published all five of uh, Portis's novels, including um, including True Grit, but also Norwood and and Dog of the South and, and others, as well as some of his short stories. And he was a uh, journalist before that. And I think that's reflected in the quality of his writing. Um, and, and Portis is, I think, a, a kind of underappreciated writer of the mid 20th century in the United States. And uh, I'm glad that essentially he's been admitted to the canon because that's what publication in the Library of America uh, seems to mean. A uh, question for you, David, would you consider Portis a Southern writer or a Western writer? So I've not read much of Portis, but I would, he strikes me more as a, a Western writer to me. That, that, that's well, the assumption, that's, that, that's the reading I have initially. Right, uh, and that would have been mine too, although I've read a bit more of his work now and I, I would change that slightly. So, so I, uh, he's from Arkansas and of course, Arkansas is a, is a, is a very interesting space. It's both mm. a little bit Southern and a little bit Western. And, and so True Grit, which is set in Arkansas in the 19th century, at that point, uh, you know, Arkansas is, is the West in the way we, we mm. sometimes think of the 19th century uh, Trans-Mississippi West. Um, so, so that could be seen as a Western novel. In fact, it might've even been published in an anthology the Library of America produced of Westerns. Uh, mm. I'm not sure about that, but it, they produced a volume a few years ago. Uh, and one often sees it anthologized in that way. But his other writing is much more, is his more modern right, or sorry, his writing set in contempt, more contemporary Arkansas, contemporary to him, I'm talking about the middle of the 20th mm. century, often reads as much more Southern. But of course, I think Arkansas was more Southern than, I mean, it goes to the place where, where, where Arkansas fits in our, in our mm. geographic space. And we're probably the wrong people to make this judgment as non-Arkansans living outside of the United States. But well, I mean, it can it can be both. Uh, yes, exactly, exactly. And I, I I think that that's what comes. Out. Anyway, I want to uh, I welcome the publication of this. I look forward to, to getting this particular volume. But I want to praise the Library of America more generally, which uh, it's a nonprofit publisher, and, and uh, you know what they're producing on balance is excellent work. So, what about you, 
Uh, well, so I'm leaving tomorrow uh, to go to Gettysburg for Gettysburg College's annual Civil War Institute. So I want to endorse that annual event. Um, it's a really sort of great venue for uh, historians, both academics and, and, and more popular or non-academic uh, historians to engage with the public. Uh, they have a huge number of people who, who come for basically Civil War summer camp uh, and, and they have lectures and tours and they go to the battlefield and all the kinds of things. And so uh, I'm very much looking forward to that because it's a great opportunity to see some, some, some colleagues and friends and to, to meet lots of, of, of interested people from the general public who, who like to do this every summer as their uh, summer holiday. So I want to endorse the Civil War Institute. Good fun. Excellent. Right, until next week. Cheers. Bon voyage, David. The Whiskey Rebellion is hosted by David Silkenet and Frank Cogliano. David is a senior lecturer in American history at the University of Edinburgh, and Frank is Professor of American History and Dean International for North America at the University of Edinburgh. The Whiskey Rebellion is available on iTunes, Stitcher, and Podbean. You can follow the show on Twitter at WhiskeyRebelPod and like the show on Facebook for updates about current and future episodes.